Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at YCharts. We're going to get into this today, but Elon Musk, now Lord Edge, I guess, tweeted this past weekend, much is made lately of unrealized gains being a means of tax avoidance. So I propose selling 10% of my Tesla stock. Do you support this? More than 3.5 million people voted. The yes is one, 58% to 42%. Oh, interesting. You voted yes. I voted no. I want to see carnage. So I looked this up on YCharts. I put in Tesla. I tracked their 30-day average daily volume. And one of the cool things on YCharts you can do is add certain things like that I always add in. You can annotate the chart. So you can add a, a min, a max. You can add recession bars. And I just added the average here of their 30-day average volume. And so it's like 21 million on average. And, and I think that average is probably a little skewed by the March 2020 because this is over the past three years. Regardless, I found there was a few different places that said how much Elon actually owns. I saw one said he owns 170 million shares, one said 190, one said like more like 230. So I'm going to go with the highest one just because who knows with options and stuff. Selling his 10% stake would be almost 23 million shares. Obviously, he wouldn't sell it all in one day, but he'd be selling the average daily volume in Tesla shares over the past three years if he's selling his 10%. I actually think he sold it Monday morning in the pre-market. Okay. So Tesla finished the day on Monday down only 5%. So if he was able to pull this off, that's not bad. That's pretty impressive. You sure he sold the whole thing? In the pre-market? No, oh, but it was a joking. joke. Okay. I thought you said, okay. I missed that. Oh, anyway. All right. One more chart from my chart. <laughs> I didn't have my coffee for the entirety of my life. Tesla percentage of shares outstanding short. We've looked at this before. It was from 2012 to 2019, around 25% Average is now dropped down to three. Can you imagine being one of those people still in the three percent shorting this thing? Anyway, if you'd like to annotate your own charts like we just did, go to ycharts.com, tell them Animal Spirit sent you, and get twenty percent off when you sign up for your first subscription. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. It's our four-year anniversary. Oh, really? What'd you get me? What's a four-year podcast anniversary? Diamonds? NFTs? I don't know. Bitcoin? Yeah. So, tell the tape, we're pushing 11 million downloads. Not bad. We'll take it. What did we learn? Well, we learned how to talk, first of all. We didn't really know how to do that very well yes. at first. Harder than it sounds. I grew an appreciation for radio DJs by becoming a podcaster. I think everyone says this, but do you hate the sound of your own voice or not? Not anymore. Okay. I've learned to love it. No, no, no. I'm kidding. I definitely don't love it, but... Listen, I'm a fan. I'm a listener. I listen every Wednesday because like you with the kerfuffle that just happened with you missing my Tesla joke, we miss each other's jokes all the time. It happens. We're thinking about what we're going to say next. So I'm we're a fan. We're skiing this thing. What does that mean? We're going to where the puck is going to be. We're thinking in our head the next hot take we're going to give. And so sometimes we miss jokes. Right. It happens. That is a long time though. We said we missed one week in four years. That's not bad. You know what's still happening? We're still having technical difficulties. Are we not? 96% of the time, it's your fault. But yes, we are. And you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to throw in these really crummy headphones because my AirPods are dying. So bear with me. Insert GIF 
of Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller hitting the computer in Zoolander. All right. The market assumes the pandemic is over. So this is through last week. So pretty close. But Live Nation, this is over the past year, up around 120%. Planet Fitness, where I used to go to work out, not to brag, up about 50%. Zoom Video, down 44%. Uh, Jeremy Schwartz. Peloton, down well over 50% over the past year. I know a lot of people have already themselves assumed the pandemic is over, even though we still have a lot of cases, people still dying. The stock market has assumed it's over. I think the nail in the coffin, the stock market has said, Scott Gottlieb on CNBC said he thinks by January, he said by January, this pandemic may well be over, at least as it relates to the United States after we get through this Delta wave of infection, and we'll be in a more endemic phase of this virus. We've said it before, and we'll say it again. The stock market did a pretty good job skating to where the puck was going. Yes. The stock market was Wayne Gretzky. Yes, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Batnick. I tried to be the goalie and failed miserably. Why? By being bearish? Did I take this analogy too far? Yeah, a little bit. All right. The interesting thing to me, the stock market continues to hit all-time highs. The S&P is up 25% this year, and it's been a very easy year. The worst- What was it up last year? 18% last year. 31 the year before that. Let's keep it going. Why can't stocks go up 20% every year? Why not? Well, here's the thing. I say this at before. The stock market goes up 20% in a given year more often than it falls in a given year. That's wild. You're more likely to have a 20% gain than a negative return in the stock market going back 100 years almost. But what about Japan? Well, all right. Here's something interesting. The stock market is rocking, but there's companies getting crushed all over the place. Zillow, we talked about, we're going to talk about this later, was down 50%, then fell 25% after earnings. Peloton was down 50%, fell 20% after earnings, 25%. Penn Gaming was down 50% and fell 20% after earnings. I think we were wondering when this would happen. Like, what would be the cause of some of this? There's too much excitement in some of these stocks. It's pulled forward too much. It's happening. Maybe you haven't been paying attention because stocks have been getting crushed all over the place. Individual stocks. The stock market, the S&P 500 has been fine, but there's been stocks getting killed all over the place. Look at this chart from... Some people would say the stock market is a market of stocks. I wouldn't say that. Some people would. (laughs) Look at this chart showing the performance of stocks after they miss earnings. Crushed, 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 crushed. This goes back to 2011. Now, the quarter's not over. It's been a bad quarter, guys. We'll get into that. But the stock market is not taken kindly to those that miss. What would it take for Tesla to actually fall? Because obviously- If Elon sells 150% of his shares- by the way, was funding secured at like $70 billion? Where was that? That was a long, long time ago. And so, yeah, Tesla was down 5% yesterday, wherever it closed, to just $1.1 trillion. This guy is a world-class troll. He does stuff like this. So you get, either way, you have people saying he's brilliant or he's an idiot. Because the people who say he's brilliant say, oh, look, Elon Musk is going to pay taxes. And the people who say he's an idiot say, no, no, no. Elon Musk has taxes that he has to pay. Can I make a prediction? You're right down the middle on Elon Musk. You don't feel any certain way. No, I think he's a charlatan who's also the wealthiest man in the world. Ah, Who's also what? The wealthiest man in the world. A charlatan. He's a genius who's also a charlatan. Okay. You recommended to me reading, I'm getting off on a tangent here, reading the Peter Thiel book, The Contrarian. Excellent. Wouldn't it be nice if we had an uber successful person these days that was a venture or tech person that wasn't a complete sociopath? They're out there. Are they? Doesn't it seem like to be one of these most successful people... I guess Bezos would maybe be the most normal-like person, even though it sounds like he's not the greatest person to work for. Would it just be nice if we had like a nice person who was also 
ultra successful and not like a complete. Nice people don't run trillion dollar companies. You can't get that big and be nice. I guess maybe I'm just old fashioned that I don't like people looking up to complete sociopaths all the time. How about this? You know who's a nice guy? Jeremiah Lowen. Let's get that guy to a trillion dollar market cap. Sure. Okay. Anyway. Nothing? All right. So speaking of, and you know, it's been four years and I'm still saying speaking of. It's a very like hacky move. It happens. It's hard to get out of that stuff. So CNBC said that he's facing a tax bill of more than $15 billion on stock options that are coming due. So that's why he basically has to sell. So wait, you're saying that there's something else going on? He's not just letting the world decide? (laughs) But I mean, honestly, if Squid Game is really happening, Elon Musk is 75% chance he'd be taking part in it. Oh, as one of those dudes with the masks? Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, that dude definitely likes, he's definitely into some weird stuff. All right, so. And he's probably going to change the world. Like his push of, of Tesla into electric vehicles has pulled forward all of this from all these other car companies. And he's probably literally going to change the world and he's still a troll, which. Doug Bonaparte has this theory that, I don't know if he's said this publicly, but eh, I'll add him, that Elon is like totally Teflon. That he's got something going on with the government where like he really he has him by the proverbial you know what. And he could do whatever he wants. Well no, the reason he has the government by the you know what is because he's the richest man alive. He could pay any fine they ever set on a like what are they gonna do to him? And I think that theory maybe showed true over the weekend when he tweeted to the head of the finance committee. What did he say? <laughs> what did he I, I say? Don't, I don't wanna I don't wanna <laughs> say it. Just I don't want to say it. I'm thinking about, did he say what I think he said? I think he did. So anyway, Sam Bankman-Fried tweeted, quote tweeted Elon when he tweeted that at whatever, what is that, Saturday, Sunday? I can't remember. Because my first reaction was, I want to see the price. What's going on with the stock? Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX tweeted, because traditional markets close on weekends, there's no way to get liquidity, risk management, or price discovery based on this tweet. Oh, wait, there is. So 24-7 stocks coming. Yeah, it's inevitable at this point, I think. All right. The market is up a lot. A lot of the things that are up a lot are companies that are being valued on potential and hopes and dreams. And not just that, a lot of these companies are delivering some of the expensive companies. But the Loothold Group has this great chart showing the number of S&P 500 stocks trading above 10 times sales. And we are so far past the dot-com bubble. We're basically double that number. And the S&P 500 median price to sales ratio, also more than twice as high as it was in the dot-com peak. And I understand looking at this chart and squirming and saying, this is going to end really badly. And for a lot of these companies, we're seeing that play out right now. But trying to use old metrics for new companies is probably not the best approach. Like trying to do valuation analysis on hyper-growth companies in a world that looks nothing like it used to. Is it different this time? Yes. This chart is an advertisement for software. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Software is, yeah. Okay, here's another thing that doesn't make sense. So the Fed announced a taper last week. They're going to stop buying as many bonds, I guess. They're going to stop insider trading their accounts. The labor market is improving. We'll get to that in a little bit. Unemployment rate's well under 5% now. Infrastructure bill was passed this week. I know that it doesn't all get spent at once and it gets parceled out a little bit in pieces over the years. The pandemic is getting better. The economy is chugging along. And then interest rates just continue to fall. What is... <laughs> 10 years at 1.45% as of this. And it's been falling in the last couple of weeks. Since they announced the taper. And guess what? Dollar's still strong. What will it take for interest rates to rise? An act of God. I don't know. 
because people over the years have talked about how like bonds are in a bubble and shorting bonds is an easy bet here. I guess we are Japan in some ways with rates where they're just never going to rise again. I don't know. I don't know what else it would take at this point. 10% inflation? There's a lot of stories in here, but I think it's mostly a demographic story. The demand for yield is just ridiculous. I don't know how it goes above. I don't want to give out a certain level, but yeah, I don't know how it rises materially. All right. Let's talk about what we're about to do here. As we've mentioned on the podcast before, we have been working with Quarter, the app, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We invested and we were going to do four quarterly podcasts next year where we review earnings season. What do we learn? Big trends. But that is, we're not going to do it that way because earnings season is too long. Too many things happen. It's going to get stale if we waited. It would be too much work. So what we're going to do is during earnings season, we're going to do a segment that we call Great Quarter Guys. And we had in the doc a place for this that we called Company Specific. Basically, we're swapping out that name. We're calling it Great Quarter Guys. And we're going to discuss some of the earnings calls that we've listened to over the past week. And on today's episode, we're going to discuss Zillow, Peloton, Airbnb, Shake Shack for a second, and maybe AMC. We're going to try and move fast because there's a lot going on. Listen to. In full disclosure, this was in CNBC that we have made an investment in this company. We're trying to help them. Ben didn't make the cut. I don't know what happened there. CNBC cut me out. I think someone at CNBC has a grudge against me because they cut me out of the release. No Ben Carlson (laughs) mentioned at all. I feel slighted. So Zillow's the first one we have to talk about because we've talked about this a lot. Before we talk about this company specifics, do you want to talk about how to listen to an earnings call? So someone actually asked us this on Twitter. How do you listen to earnings call? And we're not experts at this because we don't do this all the time. We don't. This might be the blind leading the blind, but let's try. Here's my assessment. First of all, one thing you have to remember, I used to work for sell-side analysts. It was my first internship I ever had. And these analysts, these are the ones that follow the companies and industries, and they are the ones who ask the questions on the calls for the most part. These analysts have to kiss the asses of the company management because that's where they get their information from. So you have to understand that they're never going to go that hard at these people. So if they do pry a little bit, and this happened in the Zillow call where they're like, wait a minute, you are kind of singing a different tune than you were last quarter. Though they say it in a very nice way. Like that's a huge red flag, I think, from the analysts if they just pry a little bit. So that's one thing to understand. You know who goes in a little? Rich Greenfield. Okay, that makes sense. I think it also happens to listen to multiple calls to see how the narrative changes. Because I listened to the last two Zillow calls before this one, and you could hear between the last call and this one, it was a totally different... I mean, it was a huge pivot away, like the stuff they said in the previous one. So I think that helps too. Obviously, the quarter has the Q&A button. I think unless there's a huge announcement, just skipping the stuff that they read that you can probably read in the letter anyway and going right to the Q&A helps. I didn't skip the Zillow one because I wanted to hear Rich Barton speak. That was the same for me for this one because it was a big announcement. And what about the transcript? The transcript is huge because oftentimes a lot of the canned stuff that's pre-written, I want to listen to some of the before the Q&A, but not all of it. So if you have the transcript open while you're listening, you can easily skip ahead. So the Zillow one we both listened to, and there was a lot written about this last week. We've talked about it a lot too, the iBuyer thing. And remember a few weeks ago, we had someone say, listen, if and when Zillow gets to scale this could be an amazing business. I think Zillow kind of admitted getting to scale is really difficult. And especially with our model, it's probably never going to happen. There were some things that were frankly shocking to me, how they were going about this. Their pricing model was trying to forecast housing prices three to six months into the future, which is that how like most house flippers work? You think the way you do it is you find a house that's relatively decently valued, 
you fix it up, you clean it up a little bit, put some paint on, new carpet maybe, and you sell it for a little more and you have scale because you have relationships with these contractors and you don't pay as much as you can sell it for for the upgrades. That's kind of my thought process of house flipping. It doesn't seem like that was what they were doing at all. Well, the other thing that we learned, and we heard this from listeners, is that they were just buying indiscriminately. And I wonder if this is an incentive problem where the people, the Zillow employees that were making these purchases had no skin in the game. And so their job was to buy houses. So they bought houses, right? But for example, that one email that we got where the house was unsellable because the big dog barking in the backyard, they couldn't sell the house. And Zillow came in and was like, boop, boop, boop. Yeah, we'll take it. Hercules though. Hercules. I called him Zeus. Yeah, Hercules. So examples over and over like that. So Rich Barden said, put simply, our observed error rate has been far more volatile than we ever expected possible and makes us look more like a leveraged housing trader than the market maker we set out to be. The other thing that I thought was interesting, he said, we risked alienating our current clients. He said, 90% of the people we made an offer to turned us down. And like we thought we were maybe breaking that relationship we had with them. Because they said there, they still bring in like 230 million unique visitors to their website a month. This thing is still an enormous brand that people love to check their houses or look for other houses. So 90% of people turn them down. Is that because the whole premise of the iBuyer is that they just make it much easier to sell your house? Selling a house has never been easier given the everything that we've been discussing for the past year. Maybe more people wanted to have people outbid each other instead of having just a number. So was this the worst possible environment for Zillow? Could they have been sure. successful absent? And I think Mark Andreessen has talked about this. There's three places where technology is at a hard time making things more efficient. One is healthcare. Two is education. I think a lot of that is because the government is heavily involved in both of those industries. But three is real estate. There hasn't been a technology company who's been able to come in and chip away at realtor fees over time. There's still 5 or 6% for the most part. Do you think Open Door is a shot? I think that they're probably going to be more of a niche player than a get to scale. That'd but be this my... is all Open Door focuses on. Whereas with Zillow, Zillow came in late, tried to copy. This is one of their half a dozen business lines. What Rich Barton said was, before I close and hand it over to Alan, and this is what we were betting on with the turnaround. Like I bought the stock down 50%. I sold it down 30%. I bailed right after earnings. I'll get to why in a second. Rich Barton said, before I close and hand it over to Alan. So sorry. <laughs> Rich Barton is the founder of Expedia, and Glassdoor, and Zillow. Yeah, the guy running Zillow is very talented. Yeah. Rich said, before I close and hand it over to Alan, I'd like you all to know how personal this is for me. Can you say before I close and hand it over to Alan one more time? I know, I'm sorry. I am founder and first money into Zillow 16 years ago, and I'm the largest individual shareholder. I'm sorry for how difficult and disruptive this will be. I am grateful to them, meaning his employees. They have worked hard and will be missed. We are committed to providing a smooth transition for those affected. So they're laying off 25% of their workforce. And Ed Borgato, friend of the show, said, the criticism Rich Barton gets will be deserved, as would the praise had he got it right. But give me the CEO who has the guts to exit a bad trade and face the market consequences over the one who won't. They pulled the plug on this very quickly because obviously the last quarter, they were still kind of hopeful about it. So they decided like, okay, we're going to lose even more here. We have to do it. And that's the fail quickly thing. That's what everyone in Silicon Valley wants you to do. McMurtry said something interesting, Super Mugatu. He said, Zillow shuttering iBuying is the first super popular bad thesis to play out in like 10 years. It actually ended badly. I forgot that was even possible. Just seemed like a thing people say before they lose money. I think that's probably why so many people were dancing on their grave as they were falling and saying, see, we told you this couldn't happen. Here's my thought process for selling. So I wrote a post about this, what I learned being wrong. I already knew that trying to be a value investor with growth stocks is ridiculously hard. 
trying to say, okay, Zillow got cut in half. All of this bad news that we've been discussing is mostly in the price of the stock. I believe in Rich Barton. I believe in the team. I believe in the thesis. And over time, they can turn it around. But I already knew that this was incredibly difficult, which is why it was my second smallest position. It was not a meaningful number. The next day, I had two decisions to make or two choices. There was a fork in the road, Ben. What was it down? 25%, 22%? What? It doesn't even matter. It was down a lot. I can either double down or bail. And I do think that the brand is strong. And I do genuinely believe that the stock will be worth more in five years than it is today. However, turnarounds are incredibly rocky. They take a long time. And the bottom line for me is, it wasn't just a financial decision like, oh, do I put my money in? I don't want to commit any more mental capital to this. So I was dating, wasn't looking to get married. I was wrong. I sold. No harm, no foul. Your thoughts? I'm going to stay together for the kids. <laughs> so you're sticking with it. I, don't, I still think that my thesis is housing is going to remain strong for a number of years. I am hoping the brand helps. And if I'm wrong, so be it. Okay. I want to talk about one more. And this is, we spoke about this. I was debating whether I do this, lest I look like an absolute moron and embarrass myself. But I'm going to talk about Peloton. Credit to you for wanting to look like a moron and embarrass yourself. Well, here's the thing. I'm kidding. Losses are way more fun to talk about than winners. I think so too. I had seven stocks. Now I own five because Peloton was one of them. That's why. What? On the weekends, you and I, when we're betting on sports, we share our losses with each other. We don't really brag about the gains. It's way more fun. fun. It's not fun. So I do have wins. I do have stocks that are doing phenomenally well. I don't want to talk about them because- Yeah, who cares? Who cares? Exactly. There's a lot of stocks going up. I'm not a genius. So Peloton was literally my smallest position. Like absolutely immaterial. Same thesis. I understand why it was down 50%. Strong brand name. I think it could be the gym of the future. All that sort of shit. Obviously, fell 30% on whatever day it was. And just to give you context for how small this position was, Peloton was down 30%. I sold. My portfolio was down like 0.2% when I sold. So it was like truly and really a meaningless position. It was a starter position that if I could add to it and the turnaround was there, whatever. It didn't materialize. My thoughts on this one were always like, I still think their brand is strong. I am a user who thinks that it's a great product and platform. My whole reason for staying away from it when it crashed initially was because I think a lot of workout stuff is faddish. And yet this still surprised me how much they're down and how much people are like trying to just kick them to the side. Why wouldn't a company like Apple step in and buy them? What's their market cap? I mean, it's below 20 billion at this point. I don't know. I still think the brand is stronger, even though that- So credit to me. Credit to me. If you're going to buy growth stocks on the way down like an idiot, at least keep it very, very small, which I did because I already knew that this was unlikely to work. So what's funny, Ben, is that that morning I was telling you, my neighbor, we said the kids together on the bus. My neighbor was talking about, he's like, what idiot would own Peloton? If you couldn't see this coming, you should never be allowed to own stocks. And I did that meme where the guy's like this, yeah, <laughs> the cartoon character. and But again, credit to me, very small position. I was wrong. Same thing with Zillow. Do I think it'll be higher in five years? Yes. Am I willing to ride it out, commit more money, more mental energy? No. This is what makes picking stocks both so enticing and so maddening because these stocks both had a Black Monday, like a 1987 crash in an individual stock. <laughs> and the market's at an all-time high. That's what yeah. makes this so difficult if you're going to be a stock picker. Like you said, do I get out or do I double down or do I hold? It's not easy, this stuff, because there are so many instances where stocks have gotten pummeled. Netflix was down 70% in 2012. You look back now and say, why wouldn't you buy that? And at the time, it made sense. Same exact thing could happen with Peloton and Zillow. The story is still yet to play out, so we will be monitoring. But I lost a fingernail, whatever, no big deal, not even a fingernail. Zero Hedge tweeted, Bally Gifford down $800 million on Peloton. On the day that they reported earnings. 
So they lost like five of their toes. Yikes. All right. So what happened in Peloton? Here's a quote. From forecasting consumer demand to accurately predicting logistics costs, our teams have never seen a more complex operating environment in which to guide our expected results this year. Basically, the growth has slowed dramatically. Riding has slowed dramatically. The treadmills, I don't think, are going very well. But you saw, you heard the same exact thing when I listened to the Shake Shack report, just the unpredictable environment. And I'm sure on every single earnest call, it was the same thing over and over again, how difficult it is to forecast right now. And navigate. And this is one of the things that we're going to try to get from listening to these calls from quarter is like, what are some of the themes that all these companies are looking at? Inflation. It is more interesting, I think, to talk about these companies that are getting dinged than the ones that are doing amazing. Because the ones that are doing amazing, everyone's already bragging about them. Who cares? Airbnb, for example, they just crossed a billion cumulative guests. So Airbnb was one that I wanted to buy when it crashed, and I just didn't. But sometimes buying growth stocks when they crash works. Airbnb did. The rebound has been tremendous. Hand up. Good for you. Same thing with Snow. Same thing with Unity. And other times it doesn't. Zoom, Peloton. Yeah, Shopify came back. A lot of Zillow, companies came Shopify. back. Yeah, so some do come back, some don't. All right, AMC just reported earnings for the three months ended September. What? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? LOL. Does the market care about AMC's earnings? <laughs> it's a meme stock. I just care about it from the movie theaters or dead point of view. Oh, okay. So I don't care what the market thinks about AMC. Let's say that's not trading fundamentals and leave it at that. AMC three months revenue ended September 30th in 2020 was $63 million. Obviously, it was basically zero. $425 million in 2021. Okay, I've never looked at this before. The fact that their food and beverage revenue almost equals their, it's like two thirds of their admission. That Man. jumped out at me too. So, <laughs> so high. The revenue for admissions was up 7x from 2020 to 21. Pretty sure that's all inflation, though. But the food and beverage is up 10x, and I'm not kidding. That has to be inflation. Okay, so what do you buy when you go to the movie theater by yourself? What are you buying for snacks? I'm a popcorn Sprite guy. That's almost the only time I ever drink Sprite. What are you, like milk duds or something super lame? No offense? Yeah, something chocolate. Chocolate? Something like that. Well, you don't go to theater, so what do you eat at home? It's been a while. Do you do popcorn on the couch? I'm like a chocolate-covered raisin kind of guy. You mean raisinets? Yes. Good stuff. All right. I spent some time over the weekend on OpenSea, playing around, NFTing, this, that, the other. And I was thinking, I don't want my wallet public. What does that mean? There are these accounts on Twitter that show big NFT purchases, oh. and they show like big losses, big gains, all this sort of stuff. And it tells you like whose wallet it is, how much money they have. So look at this new will. He spent 0.5 ETH on something, and now it's worth 0.00001. Exactly, exactly. But you have no choice in the matter. No. What you can do is you could have an anonymous account, obviously, so that people don't know who it is. And that's, I'm guessing, what most people do. Here's what I mean. Let's say that you tweet out your NFT because it's community. That's the whole point is to share. Now, somebody could find your NFT and look at your entire wallet. It's like you're naked. It's like, feels like very intrusive. Can I just point out here? Please. I'm never going to wear a headset thing, okay? So whatever happens with the metaverse, I'm happy. All the nerds are going to love it. Don't put that sort of pressure on yourself. What if headsets become a thing, like a really I'm cool I'm laying thing? it out now. I will not be wearing a headset. I will be the one person who does not wear it. Like, if that passes me by and like my kids do it and everyone else do it, fine. I'm not going to wear a headset. Ron Burgundy, I don't believe you. You probably also said that you would never wear AirPods. Oh, I love Air- AirPods. From the beginning, I was all in. Uh, were you? The Google Glass things, I'm sorry. I saw those right away and said, no way. The Snapchat glasses, the Facebook glasses, no out. Sorry. All right. So 
Wall Street Journal had an article about the labor market, and we've had some people question asking us, like, do you think this stuff is here to stay? Like, is this just like demographic story and people have changed their minds? And I think they're going to figure it out. This one surprised me, though. They talked about how companies are figuring it out, but they say this beauty product retailer, the body shop, is dropping educational requirements and background checks for job applicants. UPS is making some job offers as little as 10 minutes. CVS no longer requires college graduates to submit their grades. Can you imagine thinking that college grades mattered when hiring someone for anything? What job has ever been... I mean, I get it if you're an Ivy League person, you get That's a such a great whatever. point. Who cares? Why would they ever ask for those in the first place? I think these places are going to figure it out. Did you see the tweet? Actually, you might have shared this with me. Somebody saying that NFTs are going to fix hiring. <laughs> yes. What? I know. That's What? I don't know. Okay. So Joe Wisen, we talked last week about how like, why does the Fed steal their foot on the gas pedal? And Credit to them. Felt- Credit to them. They're taking their foot off. Yes. A little bit. Too little, too late, but... So he's talking about how like there's people who might otherwise be at a job site or not because of childcare. They're saying they're committed to keeping it higher than... And I think whatever you want to say about the inflation stuff, what the Fed has done, if you can credit them, it's working. So this, I think this is probably one of the best econ chart of the pandemic from Bill McBride that shows the percentage of job losses in post-World War II recessions. And we got down to 15%, which is way deeper than any other recession in post-World War II era. And you can see the blue line here, the one that started in 2007, took forever to get back to trend. This is a wild chart. This one is almost all the way back on trend from some of these tiny like downturns in the 80s and the 50s and the 60s. This is insane. And if, look at the unemployment chart. It spiked to 15%. Now it's down to 4.6. We're almost back down to where we were. And look at how fast this happened. So Your theory about markets moving quicker and rebounds happening faster, I feel like that's going to happen more maybe in the economy than in the stock market. Potentially. But for the people who complain about inflation and, oh, this is crushing us, would the alternative of 15% unemployment that takes four years to work out, would that have been a better alternative? Everybody who we hear complaining about inflation has a job and would not have been affected by this pandemic, by this recession. That's the thing. Like, Yes, prices are higher and supply chains are kind of a mess and it's made our lives more inconvenient. But there's also millions of people who now have a job that wouldn't have had one otherwise if we would have just let this thing work its way on its own. This actually made me laugh when I saw this. This was on, I guess, CNN. Somebody said a gallon of milk was $1.99. Now it's two seventy nine. When you buy twelve gallons a week, four times a week, that's a lot of money. The replies are hilarious. Somebody tweeted, "If you're going through twelve gallons of milk a week, it's time to invest in a mother cow." <laughs> this one was easy to dunk on. It gets back to the point that we've been trying to make for a while that inflation is personal. The stuff that you spend your money on, and if you're in one of these categories that's gotten higher prices, you feel it more than other people do in certain areas, and that's why people complain because it doesn't matter what the overall CPI is or it's what stage of life you're in and what you spend your money on. And I saw that you actually wrote an op-ed in M- from MSNBC, why the inflation we're seeing now is a good thing. <laughs> I did see this. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> that was obvious that someone was going to say that though, right? Yes, of course. We spoke earlier about Zillow and incentives for the buyers, the employees doing the work. I want to talk about incentives for journalists for a second because this thing went viral, the 12 gallons of milk thing. All right. So Jordan Wiseman, I forget where he works. I apologize. Tweeted, if you want a sense of the dumb incentives policy journalists are facing at the moment, a few weeks ago, I wrote an article I was pretty proud of that correctly anticipated that the climate section of BBB was going to be shockingly strong despite the demise of CEPP. I don't know what either of those things are. But then he said, it was ultimately one of the worst read pieces I've ever written in at least four years. 
BBB is the Build Back Better infrastructure plan. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Thank you. And then he wrote, last week, I tapped out a kind of dumb but fun article with some charts about the 12 gallons of milk discourse turned into one of my top 10 articles of the year. And this is not his fault, but it's basically why the internet sucks. I think it's also why we suck as people, though, because we like to blame the internet and social media and politicians and clickbait and all this stuff. But guess what? We're the problem because we would rather read an article about 12 gallons of milk than something about an infrastructure plan that could yes. help future yes. us in the future. So Good take. It's the audience. We're the problem. We're the one who votes for these people. We're the one who... Hand up. I'm sorry. We're the one who reads this stuff. I'm sorry, but at a certain point, people love to talk smack about Facebook. There's 3 billion users of the product. Guess who the problem is? The users. It's not the platform itself. It's the users. Ben, last week... At a certain point. When we were talking about transitory, you said something about like, it's inflation than disinflation. It's not inflation than deflation. But actually, remember Lumber? Remember that chart? Lumber saw inflation than deflation. Lumber crashed. Isn't it still above where it was pre-pandemic, though? Well, point for me. I don't even know which camp I'm in this week, but point for me. <laughs> no, that was my camp. That's disinflation. It's still higher, but it's lower than the highs. Okay. You're just setting up a new camp with me. You want to shack up on my camp this week? Let's bunk. Transitory? All right. All right. Dumb survey of the week. Very dumb survey of the week. Have you or someone you know quit your job at some point over the last year due to financial freedom earned by investing in cryptocurrency? 4%. 4% said, yes, I have. 7% said, yes, someone I know has. So ipso facto, 11%, one out of 10 people aren't working because of crypto. Gains, I'm going to say, I'm going to call bullshit. Did they ask like an NFT platform for this? It all depends on who you... They pulled Coindesk users. Right. <laughs> I guess that's part of it. So speaking of, it's mostly young people, I'm sure, who've done that, that have become uber wealthy from crypto. The Wall Street Journal had this article about how rich millennials are not flocking to financial advisors. And they said, thanks for the golf invite, but you can't invest my money. We're probably guilty of this too. But how many advisors really find their clients on the golf course? Is that something people just say, like talking about your stocks at a cocktail party? Like no one actually does that, but we still say it. Yeah, it's a fair point. I feel like business does happen on a golf course. No business happens at a cocktail party. I just think this was kind of an unfair dunk on golfers, even though I'm not a big golf person. But they said, here's another survey, 70% of households with a net worth of $500,000 or more headed by a person under 45 had an investing style that was either strongly or mostly self-directed in 2019, up from 57% in 2010. Basically, it's saying young people aren't going to go to advisors. And a lot of these people that they profiled in here said, well, the advisor doesn't do crypto. They don't do startups. Why would young people go to an advisor? It makes no sense. Given today's environment, why would a young person use an advisor? And the thing is, sometimes people just aren't ready for a financial advisor or don't need one. And some people, frankly, never will. But a lot of times, it gets to the point where the money becomes overwhelming or you just have financial planning and tax issues you need to work through. Sometimes you make some mistakes. Sometimes there's like a huge life event. But young people have none of those things. Yes. So obviously, there are advisors out there who cater specifically to millennials. That's their whole shtick. And that's fine. That's helpful. But some of these millennials that are rich like aren't going to want or need an advisor for many years now. We're also painting an entire group of people, young people with a broad brush. What I'm saying is the people that are on Robinhood, that are in crypto, that are crushing it, don't need a traditional financial advisor. They don't need one. They don't want one. Everything they're doing is working fine. They have no bigger responsibilities, no need for financial planning. They're young. They're working. They're having fun. They're taking risks. Cool. But there also are young people, and I don't know where you draw the line at young, that aren't 
trading all day, that do need financial advice, that do need help with the basics, 529, 401k funding, and those people are using advisors. So you can't say yes, they are, no, they aren't. But the people that are on Robin and trading don't have any use for an advisor, nor should they. They wouldn't want to use what the advisor is going to tell them, which is more reasonable advice. And I knew an advisor back in the day who told me that he had an hourly financial planning business and he would have clients come to him. And some of the clients, he would just say, you're not ready to work with me. And the clients would say, what are you talking about? And he'd say, you have to go out and kind of learn more for yourself before you... Like, some people just are never going to be ready. Dude, when I was 25, I was literally trading the triple levered inverse bearish ETF. I knew about index funds. But if I went to an advisor and they tried to put me in an asset allocation portfolio, I would have said, go, you know what? I would never have listened. And a lot of young people want their hand in the steering wheel. And then you get older and you go, I have better things to do with my time. I want someone else to be there to help me make these decisions. Yeah, I got it out of my system. I get it. I had fun. But now I have but guess what? job, responsibilities, kids. I don't have time for this. Just like The stakes are too large, et cetera. People said millennials are never going to buy homes after 2008, after the crash. They'll come around eventually, just yes, like everything else. Yes, they will. All right. You guys continue to crush a podcast. Thank you. The banter is quite enjoyable. And Michael's ability to seamlessly take both sides of an argument in the same breath gets stronger every day. Thank you again, I guess. I think listeners would appreciate hearing that you can have a 1% interest checking account at M1 Spend. It's FDIC insured. Okay. I have no affiliation other than being a satisfied customer. I've done stable coins, CDs, and all the options, trying to park money in a safe account. I might as well throw out a referral code too, because there appears to be no shame in much anymore but don't expect anyone to say it. Now, we'll link to this. We'll give you a referral code. He says there is a cost of $120 per year or something to have access to the checking account since you need to be an M1 Plus member. Hey, what are you pushing a 1% checking account here for? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I get 3% at my local credit union on checking. How? Up to $15,000. Oh, right. It's capped at 50. So do the math. It's not that much money, but 1% checking, that's not that much. You're right. Maybe I just wanted to read an email that said you guys continue to crush a podcast. Maybe that's all. Okay. Maybe that was surreptitious. Did I just use a big word? What is this black thing that keeps going in front of your camera? It's falling down more and more. That's my phone. Oh, 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 I I just used the word absolutely. I nailed it. I said I was doing it surreptitiously. Okay. Not to brag. Okay. So this was a fantastic piece by Full Stack Economics. They're new to me, or I'm new to them, I should say. I forget who tweeted this. You know, when we show the charts of anything related to the stock market, you have the 2000 bubble, we're way above whatever those levels are, whether it's price, valuation, blah, blah, blah. We say bubble, and then we point to this and we say probably nothing. So for whatever reason, we don't do that with the US National Home Price Index because we are above those levels. And we thought there was a housing bubble in the aughts, but there's not one now. So I wrote a piece about this a few months ago as well, saying if you would have just held on from 2006 at the peak of the bubble or 2007, you've been made whole and been fine. The problem is so many people were over leveraged. They didn't have a chance. They got knocked out and had to sell their home at a loss. I'm going to offer some pushback on this one. They're saying that Hold on, let me the 2000 housing bubble is greatly exaggerated. I'm going to push back on that. Okay, fine. The TLDR of this, it's similar to our theory that we laid out, I don't know, six months ago about... All of the bubbles that we're seeing started inside the stock market. Not all of them, but we're really what I was talking about was the massive gains from giant tech trickled out into crypto, and then that started the wildfire, and it all spread from there. So the bubble started inside the stock market. Similarly, what these people are saying is that the bubble started from a shortage of housing at the coast, particularly San Francisco, and pushed out. So Ben, I'll let you push back a little bit. Let me just set this up. So they said a shortage of housing led to the bubble. 
So the overall scale of California to Arizona migration was massive. In 2005, for example, Arizona welcomed about 90,000 new residents from California, 1.5% of Arizona's population. Around 50,000 people moved from California to Nevada, with many settling in Las Vegas. So the TLDR was, in effect, superstar cities were outsourcing their housing development problems. So, of course, of course, there was a housing bubble in certain geographies in 06, 07. But the big point is that they say that the policy response got it wrong because they only identified it as a demand problem when really it was more supply. And so if you look at our housing recovery compared to the UK, France, ours took much longer to rebound because of our policy response. Yeah, in the aftermath, but leading up to the bubble, we had a huge spike in housing starts. It was like the highest it's been since the 70s in the mid-2000s. So there were houses being built. You could say that there were certain shortfalls places. But the other thing is, the difference between now and then is that like that was a bubble because of the credit profile of borrowers. They were just offering credit to anyone who wanted it. And now they're being a little more exacting about it. So prices are higher, but the credit profile of borrowers Way is so different. better. It wasn't just prices back then. It was a credit worthiness of borrowers. People were taking on loans that they couldn't possibly hope to service to live in a house that they couldn't afford. Do you think Logan Motoshami would have an opinion on this? Maybe. <laughs> Just maybe. All right. One more listener email. Guys, I hate auto dealerships, so I decided to buy a Jeep from Vroom. Before it was delivered, I noticed a mistake in the description. I called to make a change. Two weeks later and several days of my life, I will never get back. I finally spoke to Intelligent Life. How can this be the future of buying a car? So he's not happy with the service? So maybe cars, houses, some things are difficult to disrupt with technology. Insurance. I say, my parents bought a car through Carvana last year, and they made a similar claim that talking to people and getting some of the paperwork sorted out was a huge pain in the butt. So I guess that's kind of the problem with trying to make this process more efficient is that sometimes the customer service could be lagging. Here's another one, Ben. Did you know that you're a policymaker? Somebody emailed us, P.S. I work as a regulator for Canada's Federal Banking Insurance Co. Pension Fund. It's a regulatory body similar to the Office of the Controller of Currency, blah, blah, blah. You influence me. And I influence policy. So by extension, you guys are truly influencers in the Canadian financial system. Nice. So I work for the Fed and the Canadian financial system. <laughs> How about that? All right. One more thing. We mentioned this a few times now. Foolhardy wine, which we got sent a few bottles. I drank the white. The white was good too. It was a Cab Sav. Cab Sav? Yeah, Cabernet Sauvignon? So Jonathan, who runs the winery, was nice enough to say, hey, we've got a few people coming and asking. We're going to give 20% discount on all wines on your first purchase if you use the code SPIRITS. I'm going to use that code, actually. I'm going to stock up. This is good wine. Foolhardy Ventures, F-O-O-L-H-A-R-D-Y Ventures. Are we going to put this in the show notes? Put it in the show notes. Spirits gives you 20% off. How about that? We're giving you guys money off of your wine. A few weeks ago, Ben, you discussed something with your parents, explaining something to your parents. And I was talking with a family member who went, he was in the airport and he was trying to find his ticket. So he put it on his phone, then he couldn't find it. The people behind the counter were saying, open your wallet. He took out his physical wallet. They were like, no, your Apple wallet. He's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I tried to, it disappeared. Yes, trying to explain this stuff to older people. And when I say this stuff, I'm talking about crypto, Web3, I forget about it. Never going to happen. Anything on your phone even, it's hard. I still can't figure out how to podcast and I've been doing this for four years. This is true. All right, I got one for you. So my Sunday night TV schedule is just packed now. So these are my new shows that I watch. Succession, Curb. I still watch Insecure, Yellowstone oh. is coming new, and the new Dexter season, mm. all on Sunday nights. Here you go. 
So what do you think the current drawdown of Waystar Royco is, the company on succession? So they had a CEO who had a brain hemorrhage in season one. They had a failed takeover attempt of that PGM, the Pierce family. The son tried to overthrow the CEO twice, Kendall, and failed. Then the CEO, Logan, flees to Bosnia. Then they have the FBI late night raid. So in the newest one, Adrian Brody, who's like a hedge fund investor and owns 4% of the company, says, I'm down 10% of my stake. Now, he could have been up a lot before, but what's the drawdown in this company? What do you call a stock that's down 80% that got cut in half? <laughs> stock that's down 90%? Yeah, whatever. I think I butchered that. Waystar Royco. I think that the stock was probably down 40%, and then on this news fell another 25 I sold my shares. I tried to buy the dip. Do you think that they stopped paying their dividend like AT&T, or they cut it in half? Oh, yeah. This is a debacle. I think an activist... Well, activists are involved. Here's my take. Cousin Greg is a young Bob Odenkirk. Oh, that's not bad. He's pretty good. They have the same mannerism, same sense of humor. What do you think? That's pretty good. Thank you. He's one of my favorites. What did you think of Yellowstone? I didn't catch the new one yet. We're still catching up okay. on all my other Sunday night shows. Curb this week? The dinner party? The middle? You're not a middler? See, I'm still catching up. Oh, okay. okay. So here's the problem. We were watching the show You on Netflix. That's like the new age take of Dexter, the guy who's a serial killer. Oh, my wife watches that. It's on the third season. It looks like a watered down Dexter. It's kind of my guilty pleasure show. And I got to say, there's certainly some cringe-worthy moments, but they nailed this season, like parents in the suburbs being really weird about kids and diets and parents trying to be influencers, even though it was like satirical. They kind of nailed it. And the finale was awesome. It's one of those things where you're like, wait, they're going to have to kill off like five characters here for this storyline to move on. And somehow they tied the show on season three into a nice little neat bow. They're going to go on in season four. But what was kind of on and off in this show, season three was very good. I'm in. Oh, you know what else I was just thinking about just randomly? I'm thinking about what we're going to do for the great quarter guys for next week because it's a busy week. There's a lot of earnings calls. How do we do it? Well, A, I was literally in bed at 5.30 listening to an earnings call. So that was fun. But you can, on the app, you can listen at 1.5 times speed. You got to dial it up. I go two times. You go two. Okay. Two. All right. One more. I watched Finch, the new Tom Hanks movie on Apple streaming, Uh, which is crazy that Tom Hanks has a new movie coming out on Apple streaming. Did not hear good things. Okay. I will say I liked it even though it wasn't like, I mean, 6'5 liked it, but it was a better performance by Tom Hanks than it was a good movie. Okay. It was kind of I Am Legend mixed with The Martian. Castaway? And maybe a little Castaway, but not as good as those movies. Oh, how good was Tom Hanks with Bill Simmons? Yes, but Tom Hanks, if this was someone else, the movie would have been awful. So Tom Hanks made it watchable by his performance, even though the movie was just okay. Okay, all right. That's where I fall on it. By the way, he has not had a good movie in a long, long time. Like a really great movie. I didn't care for the last Apple TV one, the Navy one. That was boring. He's had some decent movies, nothing great, which is kind of surprising because he is like a dad figure. I'm surprised he hasn't transitioned to that role with his movies. We got Zach Prince from BlockFi on next week. Yes. And no shortage of stuff to talk about in crypto world. Yes. All right. Animal Spirits Pod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time.